Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Melina Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student in the Yale Astronomy Department, and I study planetary systems. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and their host galaxies. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. You're listening to episode 28, Blink and You'll Miss It. In this episode, we'll be talking about some of the quickest, most short-lived astrophysical events. Oftentimes, we think about astrophysics as something that occurs on these enormous scales, both in terms of space and time, and many processes do take place over these really long scales, but others take place over much shorter time scales. I gotta tell you, Melina, this is my kind of episode. (laughs) Yeah, this this is exactly (laughs) Alex's bread and butter. So it turns out that some astrophysical events are incredibly quick, even on a human time scale. And these types of events typically fall under the umbrella of something called transient science, meaning that they appear and then disappear in some short span of time where we could define that as maybe a human time scale. It could be much shorter than a human lifetime. Or they don't appear or disappear. They could just get brighter over a short span of time or dimmer over a short span of time. Right. You can define an event in a couple of different ways, depending on (laughs) what exactly it is that you're seeing. So in this episode, we'll be talking about transient events that last somewhere in the range from a thousandth of a second to maybe a few hours if you're lucky. So we're talking about some of the quickest transient events. But before we get too deep into that, we wanted to start off with some background. So in general, what kinds of astrophysical objects typically produce transient signals? Yeah, so everything in the night sky is transient to some extent. It varies in light based on how the light is formed. But like Melina said, you have to convolve the change in brightness with the changes in brightness that we can experience. And so over the time span of a couple of seconds to a couple of hours or days or years, generally in the immediate local universe, that's something within our solar system, maybe a comet. In the intermediate distance regime, you can have things like variable stars, supernovae as well, even some cataclysmic events like supernovae. Uh, But then you can also go out to very extreme distances. And when you get that far out, then a lot of these objects are described phenomenologically, meaning we can characterize the source by its emission, but can't really describe the underlying physical processes causing it. So these are things you maybe heard about like fast radio bursts or gamma ray bursts which we're going to be talking about as well. So at each of these different scales, what triggers the signals and what actually causes the transient signal that we see? Well, it depends on what is actually causing the transient to occur. Now, some transients occur in the solar system. For instance, you can have like an asteroid that orbits the sun and at a moment in its orbit, it reflects sunlight toward the earth. Mm-hmm. before and after it doesn't. So in, in that case, that's a transient too. Mm-hmm. Light that appeared one moment wasn't there the previous and isn't there the next. And we know what that light's coming from. But when the light comes, as Alex said, from really, really far away, we have no idea what it's coming from or only a vague idea. We only really know that it has to be an enormous release of energy. So what's mm-hmm. triggering 
The signal we see is something that's often described as like a central engine, some sort of compact thing that is suddenly emitting enormous energy in the form of light that we can detect. Right. And we know it has to be an enormous amount of energy because it's so far away and we can still see it, right? And it's so short. Right. Yeah. So what are some of the shortest lived transient signals since that's what this episode is focusing on? So one of them is a gamma ray burst, which I alluded to in uh, my first response. Gamma ray bursts are the strongest and the brightest explosions in the universe. They're thought to be generated during the formation of black holes, although exactly how you can form a black hole are a couple different channels, and they last anywhere from a second to multiple minutes or an hour. Hmm. But over that short span of time, they can produce as much energy as the sun will produce over its entire 10 billion year existence. Now, the other super quick transient that we're going to talk about is a fast radio burst, and they are even faster. They take place in a millisecond or sometimes even less. That's a thousandth of a second the event comes and goes. Wow. We have no idea what's causing it. We have only detected a countable number of these. As of my counting a few days ago, it was 118 that have been characterized. So it's very tough to know where these things are coming from or what their characteristics are when there are so few detections. These are the ones that people keep saying in popular science articles are due to alien life, right? <laughs> people say a lot of things about them. Uh, the truth is we have no real evidence of anything. Um, but like Alex said, the gamma ray bursts, gamma rays are coming in the, the most extreme end of the electromagnetic spectrum, the, the most high energy particles. And radio bursts are observed in the lowest end of the electromagnetic spectrum, the lowest energy particles. But both events are really high energy. Right. And just to clarify, since these are abbreviated FRB and GRB, that RB is actually different in each of them. So it's gamma ray burst and fast radio burst. So that's kind of confusing. But just keep in mind, when you see those abbreviations, it's not the same phenomenon. It's not just like a different adjective added on to the same thing. Some people will also say RBG. That's also a different RB. <laughs> We're not going to be covering that in this but we're going to be avoiding using the abbreviations in this episode just to keep things really clear between the two. As best we can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so since some of these transients are so short-lived, we mentioned that we can really only see the brightest events. So what types mm -hmm. of phenomena do we typically expect to see or what would actually cause these really bright signals? Well, like you said, it's, it's only the brightest events we can see. So we're not getting an accurate sample potentially of all the events or all the things that could cause these events. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes it so hard in understanding what causes a fast radio burst, because if you're only observing the most extreme end of anything, you're not going to get a good picture of all of the types of possibilities. One analogy is the early days of exoplanet science. Everything we detected was a hot Jupiter. And for a long time, everyone thought, well, there must only be hot Jupiters orbiting other suns. It turns out that that was a selection bias because it was easiest to find the hot Jupiters. And now right. we're filling in the gaps and learning that there are indeed every single possible type of planet you could imagine out there. There's also, if you look within the parameter space of brightness as a function of characteristic time scale for the event, there's a, a really nice plot that's in the LSST science book. And a survey like LSST, the Legacy Survey for Space and Time, is going to, because of its wide sky coverage, going to be pushing into the shorter timescale events. And so there are a couple of things that we have hypothesized to find in there, but 
generally it's a region that has been largely unexplored by the surveys that we've used in the past. So there are a lot of different events, uh, things like fast blue optical transients. There are tons of Hmm. different acronyms in this Hmm. regime that just describe things that we've seen a couple of and we really don't have a good physical sense for what's causing them. Right. So is the idea that we're trying to look towards more of the slightly dimmer events with LSST? Or what's the reason that we're going to be able to push into more parameter space? Yeah, I think the main idea is that things that occur over very short timescales that are very fast, you can only really see them if you're looking directly at them or else you miss them, Mm -hmm. right? But the fact that we're covering so much of the sky means we're probabilistically going to find more of these events than if we were just studying a very small patch of sky. Hmm. That's a great transition, Alex, to a point I wanted to make, which is that The reason that these things are observed in the gamma rays and the radio is because both of those do all-sky surveys, where they're sort of monitoring enormous chunks of the sky all at once. So we have very poor spatial resolution, but very high temporal resolution and coverage of the whole sky. So it makes it really easy to localize in time, and it's also very hard to localize in space, which is why we don't really know what causes these things, because it's hard to identify where they're coming from. There are also quote-unquote transient events that don't necessarily correspond to unique physical phenomena, but that correspond to specific aspects of phenomena that are already fairly well studied. So in particular, I'm thinking of supernovae in the very earliest moments they undergo a process called shock breakout. That occurs when the shock wave from the underlying engine, the explosion, escapes the surrounding medium. And that's incredibly bright, but it only lasts a couple hours to a day. So Up to this point, we've discovered only a handful, maybe three or four shock breakout events, even though they're thought to occur with almost every supernova. They're just too fast to find. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so we've mentioned that we can really only see the brightest of these objects because they're maybe so distant if we're talking about transients that are far outside of the solar system. So what are the most distant transient events that we can still detect or what's the most distant one that we've seen so far? So like we said, if you're going out further and further in space, you need a more and more cataclysmic explosion in order to still be able to detect that Mm -hmm. light. So generally, you're thinking something like a gamma ray burst, probably. And I I did a little digging around. It turns out that this is correct. The furthest transient event that we've discovered has been a gamma ray burst. And actually, do you remember a while back, we did an episode about the most distant galaxy we've ever detected, and it was GNZ11. Mm -hmm. at a redshift of 11.09. So we received light from it as it existed at 13.4 billion years ago, or 400 million years after the Big Bang. Wow. It's pretty wild. It is incredible to think about. So we've talked about this galaxy a little bit before. It turns out in December 2020, just last month, a paper reported a sudden UV flash coming from that galaxy, GNZ11. And they argue that this UV flash is the result of a gamma ray burst. They didn't see the gamma rays, but they saw the UV from the gamma ray. And if so, it would be the most distant gamma ray burst ever discovered. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty wild. Wow. It is very cool to think about. So just to quickly recap before we go into our astrobytes, we've talked about various different kinds of transient events. Some of them are transient because of orbits where objects can get closer in the solar system. Some of them are transient because they exploded or something. There are lots of different ways that you can get signals that are pretty short-lived. In particular, we're going to be focusing on gamma ray bursts and fast radio bursts in this episode that we briefly discussed earlier. So those are 
abbreviated FRB, GRB, so you might see that in the literature, but we're again going to try to avoid using those abbreviations. So we'll start off then with Alex's astrobite that's going to be talking about some of these extremely bright objects. So Alex, can you kick us off? Sure, yeah. I'm going to be talking about one particular gamma ray burst event from the astrobite Stuck in the Middle, A New Gamma Ray Burst Defies the Norm, written by Wynne Jacobson Galan, based on a paper by Alicia Ruoco Escorial in 2020. And as we said, this astrobite is going to be talking about gamma ray bursts, and we typically characterize these events in two different ways. So the first way is based on the fraction of the gamma ray signal that's composed of high energy gamma ray photons, which we call the hardness, okay? So a gamma ray burst is said to be harder if it contains more high energy gamma rays and softer if it contains more low energy gamma rays in its spectrum. And so the way they parameterize this is through the hardness ratio. And that's just simply the ratio of high energy rays to low energy rays. Hard events have a ratio around 1.75 and soft events have ratios around 0.75. Where's the cutoff of what you would call a hard or a soft ray? Because you must bin it somehow to get this ratio, right? Here, when we say high energy gamma ray photon, we're talking 50 to 100 kiloelectron volts KeV. And for low energy photons, we're referring to 25 to 50 KeV. Okay, cool. Now, before I jump into this particular event, I need to talk about the second way to characterize gamma ray bursts. And that's based on the time scale over which it releases 90% of its photons from the event. And I'll call that the T90 time, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. A GRB is considered short if its T90 time is less than two seconds in duration. And it's long if its T90 time is over two seconds. Generally, this could be minutes or hours. And hmm. Melinda, you asked way in the beginning of the episode whether these two kind of regimes, the short and the long gamma ray bursts, correspond to two different underlying physical processes. Mm-hmm. Well... People think that they do. It seems like short, hard gamma ray bursts correspond to the emission from a neutron star merger, whereas long, soft gamma ray bursts correspond to the energetic collapse of a massive star under the right conditions. Okay, but we don't know, so we're just classifying these based on the signal that we see rather than necessarily what they are? Yeah, well, the idea is to classify it based on the signal, and the ones that we've studied in extreme detail we know have come from a neutron star merger and from energetic collapses of a massive star. Mm -hmm. We don't know if those are the only two regimes we talk about. But right now, people bin them in two ways, and they say either it belongs to this one group of a neutron star merger or the massive star collapse. But in reality, there could be lots of different physical processes that we just don't know about. When LIGO detected its first neutron star merger, was that evidence used to pin down where that gamma ray burst came from? It was. Yeah, that's a really good question. We talked about how with with really fast events, it's hard because if you're not looking in the right place at the right time, you're probably going to miss it. Right. But in the case of gravitational waves, we get a much better idea of where the thing is located. So generally, lots of different instruments point at that event and look for evidence of signals in different bands. So yeah, you're exactly right in that some of the ways that we found gamma rays in the past have been getting gravitational wave signatures and trying to point and localize the event in more detail. Very cool. It's amazing that we have different ways of sensing the universe now that we can use gravitational waves as a real tool. It's wonderful. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. 
So this brings us to Gamma Ray Burst 180418A. I know that's not a catchy title. I'll affectionately nickname it 18A. Okay? Okay. So Gamma Ray Burst 18A was discovered using the Burst Alert Telescope on SWIFT April 2018. And it was simultaneously discovered on Fermi's Gamma Ray Burst Monitor. Fermi's the satellite. Correct. And immediately after, it triggered multiple follow-up instruments to study the burst and its afterglow. So they observed it using an ultraviolet optical telescope and an x-ray telescope. They looked for it in ground-based radio images, but they got no signal, unfortunately. And then they took GRIZ observations, this is optical, at 1, 3, and 5 days following the events with Gemini North and South. And they also used the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope to get near-infrared imaging at six days. So is this one of the longer events then, since you mentioned these events are sometimes like two seconds? Yeah, really great question. So this is, again, talking about the T90 time. So the decay tail could last longer than that two seconds, but over which 90% of the photons are released is generally under or above that two-second mark. Now, this particular event, 18A... Its T90 time was found to be somewhere around 2. Okay. It's 1.9 to 2.6, depending on what instrument you use for the uh, for the estimate. By 2, you mean 2 days? Oh, sorry. 2 seconds. 2 seconds. Okay. Right. Yeah, <laughs> 1.9 to 2.6 seconds. Okay. And so you can see that this is kind of right on the middle of these two regimes that we're talking about. Mm. And so this is the the interesting thing about this event is we're not exactly sure whether we should call it a short gamma ray burst or a long gamma ray burst. Do we know if it's hard or soft, though? Also, great question. It has a hardness ratio of around 0.73. That's pretty soft. Which seems to correspond to the softer events. However, based on the complex modeling that was done in this paper to study the event, we think that it's a short gamma ray burst, but it's one of the brightest short gamma ray bursts ever discovered. And if it's not, then then it might just be one of the softest, long gamma ray bursts ever discovered. <laughs> and this isn't like a continuous transition, right? Like they come from totally different sources. Is there another way that you could figure out with some other amount of information what those sources are? This is a great question. So there are a couple of previous events that have fallen right in this middle threshold. I think there were like two others that they referenced. But it's tricky because all of the events they think cause a jet outburst and then a collapse into a black hole. Now, what causes that collapse into a black hole? What causes the jet to form? And exactly the dynamics of how the jet interacts with the surrounding medium? All of these things are really hard to characterize and introduce a lot of unknowns, especially because the jet can be oriented lots of different ways. And so trying to remove all of these unknowns and better constrain exactly what caused the jet is really hard to do, especially because, like I said, we only have two or three of these transitional events. So the idea is that once we build up a population, a better sample size of all these objects in the middle, if if they do exist, if they are common, then we'll get a better sense for exactly what's causing them. Hmm. Was the focus of this astrobite the detection of one of these central events that's in the middle? And are there a lot of these known now? You mentioned that there are at least a couple of others. Right. So this paper focused on 18A, as I mentioned, Mm -hmm. the signal and follow-up and attempted characterization of this event. And they studied in detail the shock of the jet as it launched into the surrounding medium. And so 
For example, they characterized that there was a forward shock and a reverse shock that rebounded backward from the surrounding medium that caused what's called synchrotron radiation. Mm -hmm. Synchrotron radiation is basically when electrons get accelerated around uh, magnetic field lines and that causes radiation to emit outward. So the compression of the electrons along the shock from the jet, they think caused the synchrotron radiation that led to the gamma ray burst. And they fit that incredible detail. It's actually the first event of this duration for which we have strong evidence of a reverse shock. But again, going from there to saying exactly what caused the jet is is really not an easy task. And we'll just need more events. Right. Cool. Well, thank you, Alex. That was super interesting. It seems like a really unique event. Yeah, I like learning about these individual events that defy the norm, that are breaking down our characterization, because it really forces us to stop trying to oversimplify a continuous distribution. Humans love to do this. We try to create gaps and buckets. And then when you find something that just doesn't fit in one of them, it really forces you to to open your mind. So I think this is a good development in the field of uh, gamma ray bursts. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah. And you will also have brought today our astro soundscape of the incredibly rapid astronomical fortnight, right? That is true. I have done exactly that. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to play the sound if you would both close your eyes for me. Is it going to be a short sound or a long sound? Let's find A hard sound or a soft sound? (laughs) A hard or a soft sound. What do you all think it is? Well, it definitely sounds like a sonification. Unless I'm I'm missing some sort of space quartet. (laughs) (laughs) I should say, this is a transient event. It has not been sped up or slowed down. So you can maybe get an indication of what kind of event it is by its characteristic time scale. Oh. It was like ten seconds. Yeah. What what takes ten seconds? I guess it could be a gamma ray burst then, right? It could be one of these slightly longer ones. What do you think, Will? I think you can get a reflection off of a small object in the solar system for 10 seconds. Yeah. It is a gamma ray burst. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Just sticking with the classic. (laughs) Sticking with with what I know. So this is the sound of a Fermi gamma ray burst discovered with the Fermi Large Area Telescope, or LAT. And in fact, the way that they created the sonification, they had assigned photons to different instruments based on the probabilities that they came from the burst. Oh. Oh, interesting. Here, the piano that you were hearing was highest probability of being associated with this gamma ray burst. Cello was medium, and harp was most likely background emission. (laughs) interesting that's confusing to include the noise (laughs) i'm yeah something about the inclusion of the symphony but i I definitely agree that it's a style choice that they made i'm glad they picked harp though because i feel like calm harp in the background is a lot less aggressive (laughs) than if they picked like oboe or something (laughs) (laughs) but that means that harp is generally background contamination right no i refuse (laughs) to accept that (laughs) 
<laughs> it's an interesting choice, though. Usually, sonifications go from highest frequency to lowest frequency and correspond to the instruments. Mm-hmm. So, to change the whole scale from most likely real to least likely real is a very interesting result. I'd be curious to see how that applies to other sonifications. Yeah. So the energy range that they used does correspond to the pitch of the particular instrument. Uh, okay. But they still bend the instruments based on where they think it came from. Very neat. Hmm. That's cool. It's an interesting way to represent it. Sure is. All right. There you have it. I think next up is Will's Astrobite. Yeah. I'm excited. We're moving on to even quicker events that make GRBs seem slow. All right, Will, you have 30 seconds to explain. <laughs> <laughs> So to recap, I'm talking about fast radio bursts, and fast in this context is milliseconds. Thousandths or even tens of thousandths of a second can go as long as a hundredth of a second. I have a space sound for that too, actually. Did you hear it? <laughs> uh, let, me, let me play it again. Did you hear that one? <laughs> I hope you don't expect me to insert something in for that. <laughs> <laughs> Editing job of the century. <laughs> When we talk about fast radio bursts, the radio in this context is about centimeter wavelengths. So radio can get from, say, millimeters to meters and even tens of meters. So centimeters are what we're talking about here. Hmm. And this burst releases about as much energy in a millisecond as the sun puts out in three days. Wow. So they're not quite as energetic as gamma ray bursts, but it's still a lot of density in time. And that's all in the radio? That's all in the radio as far as we detect. It's probably not emitted in the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, makes sense. But the, the strength of the signal that reaches Earth is incredibly weak. It's been described as a thousand times less than the radiation from a cell phone sitting on the moon, if we were to try to detect that. Wow. Wow. So it goes to show you how strong these radio telescopes are and how big of a collecting area they have to gather all of that radio mm-hmm. and make a detection. What's characteristic about a fast radio burst is its large dispersion measure. We've talked about this before. Dispersion measure is the time delay between the different frequencies. Some frequencies are slowed down more than others. And it's likely that inside the source of the fast radio burst is something that's slowing down the lower frequencies. So they arrive later than the higher frequencies. So just to recap, the idea is that sources with a larger dispersion measure have passed through more of space because there's a larger delay between the high and low frequencies when they arrive at Earth. Yes, but it's not necessarily space. It's electrons. Electrons will slow down the lower frequencies, the less energetic particles, more than the higher energetic ones. So they have to pass through a period of space, an area in space, with a high density of electrons. And there aren't a ton of electrons in free space, so you have to have a high density somewhere near the source. There aren't enough in the Milky Way, for instance, to produce those dispersion measures. What would that source be? The interstellar medium? Or would it be something associated with the source itself? They think it's associated with the source itself. That the source has a lot of highly ionized matter around it that Hmm. the burst passes through before we can observe it. But that's got to be tricky because you'd have to account for the electron density of, like Melanus said, the interstellar medium of the host galaxy, but also the interstellar medium of our galaxy when we receive it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, all those things have to be calibrated. Can you localize the direction that these signals are coming from? So would you be able to figure that out in any other way? It's really hard. Hmm. There are about 118 total detected fast radio bursts. I think gamma ray bursts are up to hundreds, maybe thousands even. Thousands. Yeah, so these are very, very few. I mean, they're coming in quick. Uh, Until 2014, there were only six of them. 
So they're, they're starting to pick up the pace, okay. but only 13 of the 118 have been localized to a specific host galaxy. Wow. And radio surveys can just keep observing all the time, right? Because they don't really care if there's sun or clouds. So that means that these must not be that common, or maybe just the really bright ones that we can actually see aren't that common? But we don't know. It's, it's, it's an open question in the field. Hmm. But also that they're so fast, so they, that makes them harder to detect, right? It does. Right. right. I mean, radio telescopes can cover a huge swath of the sky, but it's not nearly as much as, say, Fermi detecting in gamma rays. Fermi covers hmm. like 10, 20, 30% of the sky at once. Uh, radio telescopes, not nearly that amount. Right. Um, but you still have a huge collecting area. Yeah. But the, the reason they're hard to localize is because they're super fast, but also radio is really low resolution. So it's tough to identify where a transient is coming from in a short amount of time with poor resolution. And especially some of them are coming from so far away that the size in the sky is really small that contains a galaxy. So that means you can tell that they exist, but not where they're coming from then? Right. Okay. In a lot of cases. Yeah. Will, do we know anything about what causes these events? Well, that is actually the idea of the astrobite that I'm going to be bringing to us today. So one of them has been confirmed to be from the Milky Way. So that makes us think that it has to be something that's in every galaxy that are able to produce these. But there's still a lot of effort to try to identify them. In addition, there's some different characteristics. Some of them repeat like every few minutes or every few hours. Uh, and those signals are really steady. They don't decrease hmm. like some other transient signals. So really all these characteristics are just scraping the surface of what these could be. But this astrobite tries to theorize one way that you could produce the burst as we detect them. So if they have to exist in every galaxy, what's common to every galaxy? I don't know, stars? Does that mean they're associated with stars? Well, they don't have to exist in every galaxy, but they can't be unique to only the ones far away, considering one came from the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. But yes, I think in a large sense, they think it's something like a star, compact and active. Could be a neutron star. It could be something with dark matter collapse. Uh, there's an idea that it could be magnetic fields related to neutron stars, flaring stars. It's speculative. No one really knows. Okay. The astrobite I'm bringing today is called the shocking model of FRBs, <laughs> written by Caitlin Shin. And the paper is by Brian Metzger and others published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Now, they focus on an unusual fast radio burst, number 121102. That was discovered ah, in 2015. Yes. <laughs> 121102, I know it well. It's a repeater. It repeats on a regular time scale. And I believe this one is on the order of days. It's also been localized to a dwarf galaxy that is star forming that is somewhat blue at a redshift of about Z equals 0.2. So far away, but not super crazy far. And these have very high rotation measures. So they think there's a lot of electrons, a lot of charged material in the source of wherever this is coming from. To clarify, when you say it's a repeater event, do you mean it's continually repeating even now? Or does that just mean, oh, it repeated maybe three or four times? Great question. I think it's repeating even now, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Huh. I think that's right. Can you clarify the distinction between dispersion measure and rotation measure? Absolutely. So dispersion measure is you get a delay between the high frequencies and the low frequencies. The low frequencies slow down due to the electrons and the other charged particles, and we detect them at different times. Rotation measure has to do with the polarization of the light. So our best day-to-day -day experience with polarized light is when you're driving on the highway 
and it just had rained, but then the sun comes out and you get a terrible glare off of the highway that goes right into your eyes. And that's because the sunlight hitting off of the water gets all polarized in one direction and it causes really bad glare, which is why a lot of sunglasses are polarized. They try to cut that glare out. This is the idea that instead of being polarized linearly like the sun reflecting, they're polarized circularly. So they sort of have a superposition of all different polarizations. And some of those get altered in a way that we can detect, and that's a rotation measure. What causes that altering of the polarization? It's the same circumstance. It's a dense plasma, a lot of charged particles Mm -hmm. that's usually magnetized as well. Okay. Got it. Okay. The authors of this paper propose a formation model of the fast radio burst called a synchrotron maser emission. Alex already mentioned synchrotron radiation, which is a type of radiation caused by electrons spiraling in magnetic fields, and they go up to relativistic speeds near the speed of light. A maser is stands it's an acronym. It stands for microwave amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. So it's almost the same as laser. It's just microwaves instead of light. Now, the way a laser and a maser works is it requires something called population inversion. I think we may have discussed this on the show a long way back. Population inversion is when more atoms are in the excited state than in the ground state. And this matters because when you have a bunch of excited atoms and you send a photon in, you can stimulate those atoms to drop down to the ground state. And when they do, they emit a very characteristic wavelength. They only emit in one wavelength. So you send in a wavelength and you just get more of that wavelength out. That's a laser. It's coherent. It's all the same wavelength of light. And the same thing happens with microwaves. So it's a maser instead of a laser. Masers are actually one of the major ways we find water and carbon monoxide and other molecules in other galaxies. We find the really bright light from a coherent population inversion from those molecules. Interesting. The fact that the population is creating this coherent signal then means that it's easier to detect, right? Because we have this very strong signal in a very confined wavelength range. Absolutely. It's coherent. Yep. Mm -hmm. Now, here's how they describe a synchrotron maser working. They don't say what might actually cause the release of energy. So like I said, a neutron star, a black hole involving uh, high magnetic fields, we don't really know. But the central engine, whatever it is, injects energy evenly in all directions into space over less than a millisecond. And so now what happens is you have this gas cloud that's been just injected with all this energy moving at incredibly high speeds away from the central engine. And it collides into gas slightly further away that's stationary, that does not know yet about the shock front coming. It doesn't have time to get out of the way. And this outer gas is also highly magnetized. So now you have magnetized, it's perfect for synchrotron, and it's being shocked. It's being hit so hard, it just gets thrown out of the way and releases an enormous blast of energy. But then that energy has to pass through all those outer layers of the gas that was hanging around that's ionized, it's electrons, uh, that get shocked. So as it passes through, it picks up that dispersion measure and that rotation measure. It changes characteristics as it escapes the cloud surrounding the event. And then there's also some energy left behind, an afterglow that can linger, that they say could exist in the gamma rays and the X-rays. So these have not really been detected in high numbers, but these are a very specific signal that if this is correct, you would expect to see. So this was published in 2018, right? Has anyone tried to search for those signals since then? Not to my knowledge, has there been any direct evidence of this? Would we expect to see it? Or would it be too weak for us to see with current instrumentation that's again up for a lot of debate right it's 
it's hard to know what exactly that sort of testable, observable would be in this case. So does this theory seem to be holding up from everything else that we've observed over the past couple of years? It's hard to know yet. And I think that's because we don't have enough observations of fast radio bursts to start to do the right population statistics and divide them into categories, understand what could be causing them, where they are localized. But what people are very excited about is the square kilometer array, which is coming online with enough power. I mean, this is a square kilometer on the ground filled with radio antennae that is going to be able to potentially detect hundreds more per year than currently known. Um, which is uh, wild. It's going to reduce some of the bias issues and might make it possible to understand these things better. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I'm like, it would be really revolutionary in this field. Yeah, we might get to the case in fast radio bursts where we uh, have discovered a thousand or thousands of events and we finally create two groups that we think are causing them, but then we need more data to discover whether <laughs> there's a third group. Oh, the <laughs> right. dream. That's <laughs> <laughs> the best case scenario. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Will, for the awesome astrobite. You're welcome. Maybe it's a good time for a one-sentence summary, so we can start with Alex's. I'll give you the long and short of it. Gamma-ray burst 18A is probably an ultra-bright, short gamma-ray burst, but we'll need a larger sample to uncover the processes that cause these transitional events. Nice. What about you, Will? A new theory, and maybe some upcoming data from the square kilometer array, may soon be able to change the name Fast Radio Bursts to a name that actually describes what emitted them. <laughs> <laughs> Someday. <laughs> so are there any other astronomical events that have been either predicted or observed that rival the speed of these ones and maybe we just can't detect them? I found that the fastest pulsar, or rather the shortest period pulsar, has a period of about 1.4 milliseconds. So that's its period. That's between bursts. So the duration of an individual burst must be an order of magnitude smaller or something like that. That's incredibly short. Just looking at this uh, LSST science book parameter space diagram, X-ray binaries can have characteristic timescales of on order seconds, large flares from stars, as I said, shock breakout from supernovae specific pulses from stars, all these things could take on order a second. And we might find more of them with uh, LSST. Very cool. LSST must be collecting so much data that it's hard to really have real-time data reduction and immediately trigger other telescopes though, right? Or They're working on it. Alex might know the answer to this. <laughs> this is a great point. And this is what led to the advent of these things called brokers or broker systems. So brokers take the uh, alerts from different brightness fluctuations in the raw data of LSST and try as best as they can to reduce that down to real and bogus alerts, whether it's just a atmospheric effect or whether it's actually something significant that we want to follow up. And then there are other different brokers that then further break that down into, well, we think it's probably this type of event. We think it's this type of event that can then sent to the particular science team to do follow-up observations, but there are lots of different machine learning efforts in this direction to, as fast as possible, as early as possible, characterize whether something is real or not, and if it is real, what do we think it is? 
Do you know how long it takes for those brokers to do that after the data's been collected? Because, I mean, I'm thinking, like, these events are so short, sometimes on the scale of seconds to less, and LSST probably can't detect those and trigger other telescopes to actually observe them in time, but what's the cutoff? Is it maybe hours or a day or two? Yeah, that's also a really great question. This is actually something that's currently in discussion with different broker teams is what particular science cases do they want to prioritize in developing these broker systems with uh, fast turnarounds. So I know that for most science cases, you probably don't need results within faster than uh, maybe a day or half a day. And so that's okay for a lot of the things that brokers are doing now. But yeah, exactly. Like you said, for all of the events that we've been talking about in this episode, those broker systems would be insufficient for doing this kind of science. So yeah, people have been talking about in LSST, maybe sending out like really quick packets of information to brokers for the really short events, and then sending in more detailed streams of information after a day after they've done kind of more detailed reduction. But all of these things are still very preliminary. I was also wondering if there are fundamental questions that we're trying to answer by better understanding fast radio bursts and gamma ray bursts. Is there something that we don't understand that we're trying to understand, or is it more a question of, in general, we just want to collect more knowledge and hopefully that'll lead to something? Yeah, it's tough to say you want to understand something better if you don't understand it at all. Uh, so I think the science, motivating science questions right now are what the heck are these things? For fast radio bursts, right? Yes. We sort of know what gamma ray bursts are, maybe mostly, right? Yeah. And actually for the long gamma ray bursts, I said that people think now they're caused by collapsing stars at the end of their lives in very particular circumstances. Mm -hmm. And a big question mark is what are those particular circumstances? So there are some massive stars that collapse and explode and go supernova, but you never see a gamma ray burst, a long gamma ray burst. And there are other ones in different physical environments, maybe, or the star is in a different setup that can then lead to this gamma ray burst. And so trying to figure out what that transition is, and in this case, it seems like it really is a smooth transition, but better characterizing exactly what situation leads to maybe a jet that leads to a gamma ray burst that we observe versus just a standard collapsing supernova, we don't really know. Interesting. That concludes episode 28 of Astro Soundbites. Blink and you'll miss it. If you want to read the two Astrobites we talked about today and or the associated papers, or if you want to know where we keep finding all these crazy cool space sounds, then check out the links in the show notes. Are you enjoying our episodes? Is there a topic you've been dying to hear about that you'd love to have us cover? Write to us at astrosoundbites at gmail.com and share your thoughts and ideas. You can find all of our episodes on astrosoundbites.com and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Oh no, I forgot. (laughs) 